All right, turn with me today, if you will, to the book of Romans, chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and this will be Romans class number 34. Romans class number 34. All right, Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So we'll stop right there and pick back up in verse number 1. I want you to notice... He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is, for Israel. His heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. Not the men of Israel, not the women of Israel, not the individuals of Israel. Although the prayer certainly could extend to that, especially because of the context of of chapter 10 and the things that are contained in chapter number 10, certainly these things... uh, extend to the individual but i want you to notice that in the context it is for israel my heart's desire and prayer to god for israel is that they might be saved i want you to remember when we were when we were looking in romans chapter 8 and some other places as well we pointed out the importance of the word us we are predestinated us we it spoke in a corporate manner in regards to believers and so this is also a reference to a corporate entity which is the nation of israel my heart's desire and prayer to god for israel is that they might be saved now there have been folks that have been tempted to make romans chapter 10 all about israel and they negate the idea of chapter 9 uh, but if you look, excuse me, not chapter 9, verse 9. If you look in verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Well, don't forget that he's still talking to the Romans as he's writing the chapter. But in the first couple of verses, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So he's speaking about them in a corporate manner. And basically what he does in chapter 10, is says, Now they can be saved just like the Gentiles, just like you Roman Gentiles. These Israelites can be saved just like you, but my prayer is that their uh, that their whole being, their whole body, the whole body that is the nation of Israel would be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now they're not following the correct New Testament doctrine, the correct New Testament understanding of what the purpose and effect of Christ is. So that's very much what he's saying. He is so far from saying that God is finished with Israel. He's so far from that. Now it is a truth in the book of Acts that he says, I go to the Gentiles. And when he says that, he's speaking in regards to the gist or the or the the bent of his ministry. He's going to focus more. He's going to uh, be more of a witness and more of a light to the Gentiles. and But it's not because God has rejected them. It's because they have rejected Christ. They have rejected God. And so he turns and emphasizes his ministry toward the Gentile, which is what God called him to do. And God called him to preach the gospel. Matter of fact, you understand Paul says he's a debtor to the Jew and to the Greek. And so he does his job in preaching the gospel to the Jews because he knows that certainly 
according to Ephesians, he certainly knows that God wants to make one new man out of two men, the Jew and the Gentile. He wants to make one new man out of all believers. But to say that God is all through with the Jew and that God has nothing else to do with the nation of Israel is... Uh, it's so far from the truth, especially in light of what he's saying here. He's not saying, brethren, my heart's desiring prayer to God for the descendants of Abraham individually. He's saying, my heart's desiring prayer to God for Israel. Now, that's not individual Jews. That's not spiritual Jews. That's nothing of the sort. It is the nation of Israel that he is uh, having these prayers for, these desires for. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Now that goes back to Romans chapter 4, imputed righteousness. It goes back to Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So he says they're ignorant of God's righteousness, and they're going about to establish their own righteousness, which is, you know, touch not, taste not, handle not, which we see in the book of Colossians, uh, that has more to do with will worship and dis, uh, discipline and things like that than it does with justification. Uh, justification comes not by the law but through Jesus Christ. And we've learned that in Romans 3, Romans 4, uh, different places. So we're, we're not going to go back over that and cover those ideas too much. But what we want to get in Romans chapter 10 is the fact that Paul is, is making sure that uh, these folks in Rome understand that that just because God is dealing with them, just because God is is now turning to the Gentiles as far as the emphasis of preaching the gospel is concerned, that God is certainly not uh, all finished with the Jew. And then uh, he goes through Romans 10. The, as he gets past verse 3, he turns the emphasis of the chapter and the context of the chapter more towards the means of how God would save Israel just like he would save the Gentiles. But once you get back into Romans chapter 11, he'll come back to that idea of Israel as a whole and really uh, put the exclamation point and a period at the end of that sentence. Make sure you know that God certainly is not done with Israel. Uh, verse 4 uh, in Romans chapter 10, let's pick up there. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, there are some cross-references uh, such as uh, the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians, Paul is giving you a description of who he is, who he was, the things that were beneficial in his life. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So that righteousness which is in the law, well, which he said he compared to that righteousness in the law, he was blameless. The idea that a man can be blameless has to do with the fact that the law not only said what you could do and what you couldn't do, but it also gave you a remedy should you trespass. There is a sin offering. There is a, a means of, of atonement. There's a means of forgiveness. And that's the same context when you get into the book of Timothy and he tells you that, uh, that a bishop must be blameless. Well, there are no 
sinless people. There are only people who uh, have sinned. And then on, in contrast with that, there are people who have sinned and who, who have done what God requires in order to get those sins forgiven. Those men who are who are continuing in fellowship with God, 1 John chapter 1, they're continually confessing their sins, they're continually keeping a contract heart towards God, a, a malleable heart with God, those people are blameless. Those people are people who are in fellowship with God, they're following the dictates of God, the principles of God, and they're trying to uh, discipline themselves and, and continually be a disciple of Christ, those people are blameless. In this sense, in Romans chapter in Romans chapter 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. It's not the end of righteousness. It's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. In other words, not, now you're not looking to the law to justify you. You're not uh, it, uh, having any expectation whatsoever of the law justifying you or making you perfect. What you're doing is, is that you're, you're trusting Christ for your righteousness. You understand that Christ only is your righteousness and that even when you are practicing uh, personal sanctification, now we understand that there is sanctification comes when you get saved. Christ justifies you, redeems you, purifies you. He is your propitiation and he justifies you and he sanctifies you, sets you apart. All these things are included in the package of salvation. But there is a, a practice where a man dies daily. Uh, he reckons himself to be dead. He goes through the, through the disciplining practices of separating himself of disciplining himself of training himself and being trained by others and that in that sense there is a personal sanctification that must be done to say that that doesn't exist in the bible is ridiculous but uh, to establish that as your only sanctification uh, which is personal sanctification uh, to say that that's the only sanctification that there is uh, negates and overlooks the very most important sanctification that you can get, which is sanctification that comes through salvation. You get saved and Christ totally sets you apart. It's not dependent on your righteousness at all. And that is the point of verse number four. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. So that goes over to the book of Galatians. It says that uh, in the book of Galatians, it tells you about a curse. And that curse is, uh, goes for the man who begins uh, to do the law and then ceases to do the law. So he says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which were written in the book of the law to do them. So you've began, you have uh, began to walk in the law, you've began to discipline yourself, and then you draw back. And of course, that has a lot of Hebrews chapter 6 flavor in it. You can read that for yourself. But what you're talking about is the same uh, 
righteousness that it is uh, being spoken of in Philippians chapter 3 that I just read to you. It's the righteousness that's in the law. It's the separation. It's a discipline. It's a continual doing of it. But at the same time, in the Old Testament, they not being able to see, Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 2, they weren't able to see the justification that comes by Christ and the righteousness which comes by Christ. All they could see was, well, God gave us this law, we have to do it, or he'll get, give us this curse or that curse. And Paul says, uh, it's not the curse that you get for disobedience that's really the tough thing. The rough thing is that uh, it's a curse that you start the law and then stop, or you begin to live for God and then you stop living for God. And that thing is very evident as you read through the Old Testament. You can build on that as you read and learn, but it certainly is there and you can certainly see it. Uh, God would have never, I don't believe that God would have been as tough on them as to send them into captivity into Babylon and some of the other things that happened to Israel were pretty tough as well like I say you can read the Old Testament for yourself but I don't believe that some of those things would have been as severe had they not had the law to begin with and even when Moses gave him the law he said you're going to go astray and you're going to serve other gods and and God's going to take you out of the land all this stuff was told to Israel before the fact and of course as you read you can see that whatever God said came to pass for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses, uh, Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. The man that doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep. That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. So it's not our works that makes Christ effective. Uh, we're not working to bring Christ down. We're not working to make Christ's resurrection effective. Christ coming down and, and living as a man and dying as a man. In the place of man descending into uh, the Lord parts of the earth and then rising again. Well, Jesus said, I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again. Well, the same power to lay life down and take it up again is the same power that he has to give you life. And he's justified in doing that because he paid your sin debt. So it's not, I'm not keeping the law in order to have, to get the same effect as Christ coming down. I'm not keeping the law and disciplining myself and reckoning myself dead so that I, that I can be a partaker of Christ's resurrection. In other words, what he's trying to get across to you here is that many people in the religion, they think that their works has the same effect of Christ rising from the dead or Christ coming down to dwell among men, Emmanuel, God with us. No, Christ performance of those things is sufficient you're complete in him the bible says we are complete in christ and when it says we're complete in christ it's that when christ performed the life that he performed when he died the death that he died when he rose in the resurrection that he rose with 
All those things were sufficient for our justification, our sanctification, our righteousness, which is imputed, Romans chapter 4. And that nothing that we do would be the equivalent of Christ raising from... Jesus rose from the dead and saved you. But me, I'm going to discipline myself and I'm going to do enough good works to justify my going to heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. It can't work that way because the righteousness which is by faith or which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven. Not me, only Christ. So it says uh, in verse number 7, or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. Not me. I can't bring, he had to bring himself up. I, I certainly can't bring him up, and I certainly can't bring myself up. So when it talks about salvation, it's talking about something that Christ done completely, something that Christ finished completely, and then the process of, of completing that in me is done with the exception that I discipline myself for the sake of service. I sanctify myself for the sake of service. And that's personal stuff. But that personal stuff doesn't come near to the justification or the sanctification that was wrought in the works of Christ. And so that's very important that you understand what he's talking about right there. Verse number 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth. Now it's, it's a change. Recognize it's a change. In verse 1 and 2 when he's talking about Israel being saved, he's talking about a nation. In this case he's talking about individuals. And certainly this applies to, it's neither Jew nor Greek. But the Bible talks about believers in this sense. Uh, whether individual, whether Jew or Greek, male, female doesn't make any difference. In Christ there is neither Jew or Greek or male. Only believers. That's what there is in Christ. That's a spiritual thing. Don't, don't think that that gives you the license to, you know, if you're a male to forget that you're a male or if you're a female to forget that you're a female. You still have to fulfill the role that God has for you personally and individually. But as far as salvation goes, it's not a Jew thing. It's not an Israel thing. It's not a male or a female thing. It's a, it's a believer unbeliever thing that's that's the context and you have to remember the the context of of romans chapter 10 uh, rightly divide even not just the bible but rightly divide the chapter see what he's talking about when he's talking about it and this way you don't get confused you you get each thing in its order and so when you get that down pat you it, it takes away some of the confusion that you get from listening to preachers but at any rate, he says in verse 8, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, we're only at about 19 minutes, but I feel led to, to stop right there because I, I do want to start in verse 9. And I want to talk about some of these things as far as their importance is concerned. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Is that important? Do I need to pray a prayer? Uh, you will oftentimes hear from Baptists. Well, the it's not the prayer that saves you. I beg to differ. I believe it is the prayer that saves you. You say, why do you believe it's the prayer that saves you? Because he says you're to confess with your mouth. And in verse 13 he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Now, if the, he took the time to say that whether he said it once or whether he said it a thousand times that makes no difference to me the context here is salvation 
And in the context of salvation, he says you confess with your mouth. And he says you call on the Lord. So those things are very important. So I, I do want to dedicate a whole class. It may not be a long class. It might. I, I don't know. We're not there yet. So, But when we come back and we pick up in verse number 9, I want to emphasize some of these things individually and make sure you understand that each step is important. Now, if you take the emphasis off of these steps, you might be tempted to put your emphasis in some place that God hadn't put the emphasis. And For example, in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Well, if you take the emphasis off of that, you might end up doing plays. If you take the emphasis off of Romans 10, 9, you might start putting the emphasis on just, you know, just believe, just believe. It really doesn't matter what you pray, just believe. What matters most what you believe in your heart. Well, the Bible says that the devils believe and tremble. Well, it looks so, but they're not saved, see? So it's, it's not enough just to believe. Uh, we're, we certainly are looking for believers and we want people to believe but the instruction for believers is call on the name of the Lord well you know I don't think you got to pray you know all you got to do is really believe in your heart that's not what the Bible says that is not what the Bible says not at all and so uh, there are instances in the Bible that that emphasize that the disciples the deacons the preachers in the book of Acts, uh, that Philip and Stephen and different ones like that, they had specific messages. And the Ethiopian is reading the scripture and Philip draws nigh to his carriage and hears him read and said, hey, you believe what you're reading? And he said, you understand what you're reading? He said, well, I really can't understand it too good unless somebody helps me out. So uh, the Bible says that Philip preaches Jesus to him. He says, hey, what... what uh, what does hinder me from being saved? And he says, well, you've got to believe. And you take a passage like that and say, well, see, that you just got to believe. you just got to believe. And so they go down and they get baptized and all this stuff. You know, the, the, the story paints its own picture there pretty good. But when Paul begins to deal with you about the doctrinal facts of the issue, he, he says that you to confess the Lord and that you are to that you are to confess with your mouth and that you are to call on the name of the Lord so uh, sometimes it's kind of hard to find the words to say things that are super simple because everybody wants a big theory everybody wants a big explanation everybody wants this super large equation I, I suppose that is so they'll look smarter I don't know but the fact of the matter is, is that the Lord did all this great work, all this impossible work for men. Uh, a man couldn't possibly perform the acts that were necessary to bring about his own salvation. So God performed all that for him and simple, simply put it to you, do you believe? And once you say, yes, I believe, then you're to call on him. You are to call. Now, whether you say a prayer out loud or underneath your breath, that makes no difference. Perhaps there is a place where the heart can call out to God in words that really can't be expressed. I don't know each and every person's brain specifically, but I know this. I wouldn't dare die without calling on the Lord. And I'll just put that in the simplest form possible. God, save me. Lord, I'm a sinner. I pray that you would save me. I would not go, I would not go to my deathbed or I would not drive down the street knowing that I, it could be my last drive. I certainly wouldn't do that without having 
uh, humbled myself upon my knees and bowed my head in submission to God and said, Lord, you died on the cross for me. Save my soul for Jesus' sake. And it doesn't have, it's not a magic spell, but it's an effectual prayer. And it's a purposeful prayer. And it's a commanded prayer. It's not magic. Magic has nothing to do with it. But it is necessary. A lot of times when people say the prayer is not magical, what people think in in response to that is, oh, then I don't have to pray. Yes, you must call on God to be saved. He provided the actions that were necessary to save you. You have to ask God for that salvation. You have to call on him to save you. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to my deathbed having neglected doing that. Well, I, I believe in Jesus. I'm not worried about asking God to save me. I certainly wouldn't do that. I certainly would not do that. I would not, I would not rest my soul on the fact that uh, of something that I know is true in my heart. You might be, rather than being a believer, you might just be an agreer with God. Oh, yeah, I believe that. My grandma believed that. My father believed that. My pastor believed that. I believe that, too. No, it's your responsibility. You, God has provided something for you, and he's gave you a commandment to call on him, and I would certainly call him. Now, I was going to use the next class to emphasize that. Maybe I've emphasized it enough already. I don't know. But... Well, I wouldn't rest my heart on what my grandma believed or what they taught me in Sunday school. I mean, I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just saying when I go to my deathbed, I don't want to go to my deathbed just knowing that in my heart I agreed with some things that I saw written in the Bible or some things that I saw on a flannel graph when I was in children's Sunday school. I certainly wouldn't go to my grave with the idea that, you know, God just, God pre ordained some people to go to heaven and preordained some people to go to hell because the fact of the matter is is that some of that ordination stuff is not being talked about in the correct context and it might just be that God ordained men to go to heaven who called on him because he did give us this passage of scripture that's very clear and he did not give us any other passages of scripture that suggested anything else like you're saved by predestination there is no scripture in the bible that talks about anybody being predestinated to salvation there are saved people romans 8 ephesians 1 ephesians 2 there are saved people who are predestined to be conformed to the image of god's son there are no people in the bible that are predestinated to be saved, to be born again. It just isn't in the Bible. I wouldn't trust that. What would I trust? I would trust that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that if I would call upon him, he would save me. I would trust that. And there's plenty of scripture for that. Plenty of scripture for that. And there's plenty of security in that. And there's plenty of hope in that. And there's plenty of assurance in that. And I, that is exactly what I would do if I was you. If I had never done that, I would certainly do it. It wouldn't matter if I had been in church all my life, 50 years. If I had never called on the Lord to save me, and took, if I had never called on the Lord to take advantage of the clear and plain uh, operation and gift that he had provided for me, I certainly, I certainly would do that today. All right, we're going to end right there. That's about 26 minutes, and we'll pick up again. We still will pick up in verse 9 and go through and cover these verses. All right. Next time we'll pick up Romans 10 and verse 9.